Hi friends, welcome to our Common Crash Course with the Kingstown Communion for June 2023. We are doing this new thing called Common Crash Courses and and um, we are really just thinking that we would take a topic that would normally be covered in much more lengthy time uh, and do it just in like two hours. And so it's Pride Month. It's the last day of Pride Month, but it is Pride Month. And so we are tackling queer theology this month, and we're glad that you're here. I had promised you an audio version from earlier this month when we hosted this queer theology in person. We um, hosted it at Glory Days, and I had a microphone, and I wholeheartedly intended to post that immediately. But, but upon listening to it, the quality of it was really lacking, and you all would not have been able to hear every word. Uh, and it... I just, I felt like we needed to re-record it. So that's where we are. Sorry you will miss some of the conversation that happened around the table uh, that evening. It would have been more full of an experience if you had heard the conversations happening, um, but I still did not want to leave you out of, of this, um, entering into this kind of conversation about this topic. It is what Kingstown is about. We are about courageous conversation. And so I'd like to invite you to join me um, kind of in a posture of prayer uh, for the dinner blessing that we prayed that evening at Glory Days. It's a, a queer dinner blessing by Anna Bladell and Jade Kaser. And we're going to start off with that and then we're going to kind of dive into what we talked about. Dearly beloveds and queerly beloveds, we are gathering to imagine the world differently. We are gathering to enflesh the world otherwise, to say yes to new possibilities, to live tenderly, to think expansively, to do daily life with ferocious love so that life can live and breath can breathe. Beloveds, do we not know that all life is cultivated by insisting that we can't and won't be satisfied by the norms that suffocate and the habits that poison and the patterns of relating that deaden. Beloveds, do we not know the sacred is restless? The sacred is re restless in us. We pause to pay attention and to nourish strange practices to let the sacred work her queer magic through us. Beloveds, do we not know queer magic means dreaming of more than fitting in? We can't simply settle for a place at the table if the table is built on binaries and exclusions and hierarchies and control. Our collective future depends on being in this together. And so with holy urgency, we extend tables and we turn them over. We claim our place with stubborn dignity and refuse to take a seat. We reach for our lover's hand while stuck at the table or leave the table altogether and head to the park for, for a picnic so that no one is left alone. And so blessed be the queers, the freaks, the misfits, the outcasts, and all those who cast their lot with the strange. Blessed be the meal before us, whatever meal you have in front of you now, even if it's just a, a granola bar on the way to work. The earth that still pours forth its abundance, the flood that nourishes our bodies. And blessed be this gathering, even virtually now, that emboldens us for this holy labor of otherwise living and love, for the sake of collective survival, and also always the joy of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, again, welcome uh, to this time. I hope this will be 
something that maybe you'll share with a friend even, share with someone else um, on this journey of trying to figure out not just your values, your personal values as it relates to human sexuality, um, but also how those values can be strengthened, not diluted by the biblical witness. There is no topic that has divided Western Christianity more in the past decade than the topic of the full inclusion of sexual and gender minorities in the ecclesial life and leadership of Christian denominations around the world. And, and as LGBTQ plus rights movement gained tremendous momentum through the 1960s and in many ways culminated on that great day, on June 26, 2015, do you know what happened that day? The, the national legalization of of same-sex marriage by the Supreme Court in the United States. Large portions of Christianity have struggled to keep up, though, with the rapid cultural and social and legal changes, unsure of how to reconcile their doctrinal beliefs with modern psychological data and the widespread social acceptance of the spectrum of queer sexualities and gender identities. And this has largely resulted in two predominant responses from within Christian denominations. One, um, you may know this, you may, you may have seen this. One is um, some Christian denominations have just dug their heels in the ground. They've dug their heels in the ground and declared that they are not going to reconsider their beliefs on, on this topic at all, suggesting the matter has been settled completely by the teaching of Scripture and the tradition of the church. They're, they are, they're not even going to even get close to talking about it. They are not, not going to reconsider any of it. And then another predominant response from within Christian denominations is to adopt what is often referred to as a revisionist approach to biblical teaching on, on homosexuality. And I'm going to use that word just because that's the word that is often um, used in, in the church, um, in the, in our books that order churches and say what we believe, but also in, in the Bible. Uh, and so that word will come up, though it, I realize that within that word, it, it is, it's missing so, so many nuances of, of gender and sexuality. But um, the other response has largely been to, to adopt this revisionist approach to biblical teaching, um, seeking to interpret the meaning of biblical passages referring to same-sex relations, suggesting that they either don't apply to Christians in the new covenant, or that we have misunderstood the original meaning of the Greek and the Hebrew language and, and the context. Um, these are the two main ways. Either you dig in or you kind of revise, an, you do this revising approach of biblical teaching. 
and thinking. I think there's two important places for us to begin today, though. Taking into account that that is where, that's the, that's, those are the only two directions that Christianity normally goes. Two important places to begin for me, as one, as a, as a Bible-teaching, Bible-believing Christian pastor and leader who believes in orthodoxy and theological integrity, it's not my job, nor my intention, to provide a comprehensive, progressive Christian perspective on sexuality and gender. Nor do I think that that is what any of us need or what you even want from a person like me. You can get plenty of that in the book list that I provided um, and I, I can absolutely attach that book list um, so that you can, can, can look at it more. We'll make sure that, that we provide a link for that. But um, it's, you can get that through reading any of those authors. I believe instead it's my job to provide an accessible entry point for those of us who are seeking to understand how the Bible and Christian tradition do actually provide a non-revisionist path for inclusion in the church, an embrace of LGBTQ people in the full life and leadership of Christian community. It's my job to show you, to give you a path into understanding the Bible and Christian tradition as not apart from, separate from, but, but as... Um, as a place we can go to, to see God's work of inclusion and embrace. And then the second thing, I, I think we, a second place we need to begin is the teachings of the church about non-inclusion. We, we have to begin by acknowledging that the teachings of the church about non-inclusion have contributed to this ever-deepening well of psychological and mental and emotional and spiritual harm. The European Symposium of Suicide and Suicidal Behavior released groundbreaking surveys, and this was back in, in 2015, that, that showed that suicide rates among LGBTQ youth were significantly higher if they grew up in a religious context. And from dozens of studies between 2001 and 2019, profound links were found between religious affiliation and higher rates of depression and suicidality among LGBTQ adults as well. The American Journal of Preventative Medicine found that while religious affiliation and community significantly decreases the risk of suicide among heterosexual or cisgender youth. It significantly increases the risk of suicide among LGBTQ plus youth. The fruit of not addressing this abuse 
through the teachings of the church about non-inclusion has has been done has been used the fr- the fruit of of not addressing the abuse that has been done with the bible as a weapon that fruit is so rotten for the church and so we have to acknowledge that A revisionist approach, just putting aside scripture as separate from our values, is not a way forward for Christians. To just give a a broad swipe of God loves you without being able to figure out what to do with those scriptures that have been used as weapons against people, that does not work. But also, digging in and not talking about it has done so much harm. It, it's, it's made the Bible a weapon and the fruit of that is so rotten in the history of the church that we have to begin having courageous conversations about it. Whichever denomination we find ourselves in, wherever we are. With that intro in mind, I, um, I wanna answer first, what, so what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say as it relates to human sexuality? The Bible says so very little about homosexuality or any understanding of sexuality or gender outside of that which is heteronormative and cisgender. It says so little. And the Bible says absolutely nothing absolutely nothing about modern same-sex relationships, modern sexual orientation and gender identity conversations that we're having now. Regarding sexual orientation alone, it it wasn't even understood. It wasn't even understood as a concept worth talking and thinking about until the, the 16th century, meaning that the writers of scripture would not have known or, or thought in terms of the categories of heterosexuality and homosexuality, they, they, they wouldn't have even been able to process it. Nobody was talking about this. It wasn't even a concept worth talking about. The Bible does, however, make a few references, a few, five to be exact, to same-sex sexual experiences. And it is from these limited passages that the church has constructed an an anti-affirming theology. That is out of 23,145 verses of scripture, there are only five that say anything of same-sex sexual relationships. And you probably know where they come from. I'm going to give them to you. Um, It it might be good to to grab a Bible um, or to write these down. Um, Maybe you're listening the first time on your ride to work, but you're processing and chewing on this, and you want to get a Bible and and go back to them later. But those five verses are, and we're going to talk about them, are Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and 
1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. I have no problem conceding that for some of these texts, particularly the Leviticus passages, that their interpretation in the ancient world would have been a flat condemnation of all forms of queer sexual expression. And that's because the, the patriarchal worldview that the authors of scripture functioned within demanded that they condemn all queer forms of sexuality and gender because such expressions fundamentally threatened the ordering of society. And so, yes, if a modern gay couple were to appear within the historical context of the ancient Hebrew people, it is quite possible that they would have been horrifically put to death. But this is not where this conversation ends. And so I think a path forward for us today, and, and as we continue to talk about this, and as you continue to talk about it with your family and your friends and those people that you disagree with or are, are the people that you share closely with, these kind of conversations, um, I think the, the path forward for us is um, in, in order to come to a place of full affirmation and celebration of LGBTQ identities from a, a Judeo-Christian perspective, the only logical and faithful path forward is to, one, discover more faithful ways of relating to scripture as a whole and then to chart a trajectory for inclusion that the spirit seems to be drawing the narrative, the, the, the whole narrative of scripture towards from Genesis to Revelation. And so to get at these texts, and like I said, we're going to talk about the texts. Um, we're not going to do a broad revisionist sweep over scripture. We're going to talk about those main texts today. That, that have been used as weapons against the full inclusion of LGBTQ persons within the life of the church um, and, and within the full life of Christian community and leadership. And so um, I, I want you to think for a second, what are those texts? What are those texts that you have heard personally used to defend a non-inclusive teaching of the Bible. What are they? Which ones come to mind for you? When we had our um, our gathering at Glory Days, um, the very first two that were thrown out, I mean, it's it was exactly what I expected. Um, it's the two that I heard gr growing up, the two um, passages in Scripture, not not from even those five that actually directly mention it um, or something related to it, but just other stories in scripture that are used to, um, to point towards, towards non-inclusion as, as a way of pointing, oh, God does not like that, right? What, what, what are those stories for you? The, the two that came up at Glory Days Genesis, 
the creation story is often used. And then later in Genesis, the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so let's start with those today. Let's start with those. Um, outside of the Leviticus texts, no biblical text has been referenced more than Genesis 2 in attempts to discount the LGBTQ Christian. You've probably heard this famous phrase before. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Mantra has kind of lived in some of our um, conservative evangelical traditions. Maybe you heard that growing up. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are poetic and in mythical stories recorded to give the God of Israel credit for creation and the expansion of humankind. And so first, we just have to say that the writers and early readers of these stories would have never taken them literally. But I know that does not help you when you are talking with your family, those family members in your life who do read Genesis literally, who read the creation story as if the world, earth as we know it, the entire universe was created like this over, over, over seven days by God, right? So you have people in your life who do, who don't read this as poetic and, and mythical and, and, and more of a, um, a story that was actually used by, it was actually a very similar stories were told in, in ancient Mesopotamian and Near East cultures that our story very much mimics that one. But for those of you who know people in your life who do take this story seriously and believe it as the way that the, that the earth was created, uh, have a creationist perspective, for their sake, let's just, let's just read this text literally today and see if we can still get to a place of non-inclusion. Look at Genesis 2. What is God's true impetus for the creation of the second human? It says that God noticed and decided to remedy the man's loneliness. And God's first creative inclination to remedy the man's loneliness was what? It was animals. Genesis 2 has often, the creation story has often been used as this basis for marriage between a man and a, and a woman, right? Um, but, but if we interpret the story as a basis for marriage, we have to ask, did God really think that the man would marry one of the animals? For God gave the animals first as a means to remedy man's loneliness. God is not marriage matching here. It's pretty obvious when you read that, that God's first solution is to offer, offer these animals. And, and the animals just are not doing it for, for, for Adam, right? There, it's just not enough. God was presenting real options to Adam for companionship and community. But we know that you can't really have true companionship with an animal. 
Oh, do we love our animals? Absolutely. But when is companionship truly expressed and enjoyed? When, when, when there is someone who is relatable and yet unique. We don't want a clone of ourselves. We want someone who understands us and, and yet embodies a unique sense of self and holds different ideas than we do. Someone we can have a conversation with. The fact that the man claims the woman as his wife is only secondary to the initial intent of the story and the impetus for God even creating the second human. God really just didn't want to see us be alone. And this is one of those first glimpses into God's value of companionship and community and covenant. And the woman, yes, was relatable and yet unique. This man and woman use being one way that God talks about this relatable and also unique. But the fact that they are man and woman is not the main, the main point of the story. 